0: Watching the 500 from 1994 earlier this morning. So, we'll call this the Sterling Marlin edition of Motorsports Analytics' own positive regression. How about that?
1: Uh, very poignant considering the race coming up this weekend. Uh, one of the the best drafters we've ever seen. And let's give some love to Morgan McClure Motorsports, they don't get enough. No, they don't, and they were a staple
0: in the sport for a while, and uh, yeah, just an old classic name at this point, unfortunately. But uh, you and I, we got to see each other. Uh, we don't always get to cross paths, but we spent the first weekend at Daytona uh, just this past weekend, and we, we crossed paths, obviously, and got to, to meet up and everything, and uh, it, it was an eventful first weekend. When you look back, you know, when we're looking toward the Daytona 500, you look back at the first weekend and kind of, you know, what did we learn from all that? I think we can take away that that Jimmy Johnson and Chad Knauss are going to be just fine, Uh, whether it be from last weekend or as we move on through 2019?
1: I think so. I think we saw, uh, despite uh, the inclement weather, I think we saw some teams showing their hands early. Uh, I don't know about you, but I took a lot of things away from the clash that um, maybe exist outside of just the, the box score. There might have been some ambiguity as to whether... Another team would attempt the four-car bulwark at the front of the field that worked so brilliantly for Stuart Haas last fall at Talladega. Uh, that ambiguity is gone. Team Pinsky made it clear uh, from what we saw in the Clash that that is their intention for the Daytona 500. We almost had a Daytona Clash one by Paul Menard, the, we we were very close to having that happen. You once called me the Nostradamus of uh, of of Paul Menard predictions. Um, <laughs> I I would not have predicted that. We didn't mention him in any of our previews, but it makes sense. He's a benefactor of that Penske Roush Yates contingent, and was the driver at the front, being. Uh, uh, being chased by Brad Keselowski and Joey Logano. And boy, they looked really good. They did, especially
0: as a group. But I, I still maintain that these are not crapshoot races. No matter what you have under the hood, the skill will come out at the end. So I don't know if we were going to see a Paul Menard clash win or not, but the Menard fans can argue with me on that.
1: You know, one um, one other thing I saw, uh, Alan, that it didn't have to do with the finish of the race, but just something that took place. I picked Chris Gabehart as... My person who interests me for Joe Gibbs Racing during our season previews, Gabe Hart, of course, taking over as the crew chief for Denny Hamlin, I think his fingerprints were on Denny Hamlin's uh, very aggressive move while pitting under green. Uh, Jeff Gordon in the Fox Sports booth pointed it out. Hamlin, uh, about fifth in line, coming to the pit entrance, dodged wide, passed about four cars, and gain spots before ever hitting pit road and it it stands to reason that yes while nascar patrols pit road speeding there is no rule that says you have to have the same braking point prior to the pit entrance as every other car in front of you and hamlin as we've discussed, typically aggressive when coming to pit road. I think unfairly he gets uh, labeled a a frequent pit road speeder. I have debunked that notion. Positive regression listeners should know that whenever that comes up on television, but he tried out this move and it worked really well. And so there are already, we see a little bit of that partnership coming into play. Gabe Hart uh, was so integral in Joe Gibbs racing's Xfinity teams practicing some very aggressive pit strategy when he oversaw Kyle Busch's team. Denny Hamlin, typically aggressive. That is something that we might see more of from this driver-crew chief combination.
0: And you weren't only doing work at the big speedway. I mean, let's not forget part of your other uh, worldly duties. And when you're aside from not being a husband, father, and a podcaster, you were also out uh, looking at some prospects. You were down at New Smyrna. A- anything quick you want to just fill us in on after week one?
1: Oh, sure. Uh, I, I think you know some of our listeners are probably watching the, the new Smyrna races on uh, um, Fans Choice TV, uh, and they may have some questions. Uh, there, are, there are a slew of good young drivers uh, competing in the various classes, super late models, pro late models, and then later um, this week, uh, the, the and Modified Tour. But they'll notice that there wasn't much in the name of passing And I I think I can offer an uh, an explanation for that. Uh, New Smyrna Speedway is, 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 as it has been told to me, is a two-groove racetrack. And I have been going there for the last 20 years. I'm going to tell you right now, that isn't true. It's a a (laughs) one-and-a-half-groove racetrack. And what that means is that if you wish to pass on that track it will not take finesse. So if you're doing a Kyle Larson impersonation, you better leave that at home. It takes muscle to pass at New Smyrna. You will make contact when you are passing another car. And when a young driver uh, arrives at New Smyrna for the first time and they realize that all of a sudden a pass encounter, it's going to be a close encounter. Um, some trepidation begins to surface. How these young drivers negotiate passes is what makes New Smyrna such a good track for scouting. Uh, A couple of years ago, I had obviously heard of Todd Gilliland. Um, I had never um, gotten a good live look at him. But from the onset, uh, he was not afraid uh, to throw just enough muscle. You, You can be aggressive without crashing and crashing somebody else, but just enough muscle to get the job done and make the pass and get clear. And he did that. I believe that that speaks volumes to not only his ability as it is, but his staying power moving forward. He was very quick to adapt at the racetrack. So I think as as a as, since this is a a week long event, um, we're gonna see some of the young drivers figure this place out. And it, it, you know what, Alan, it's not really just the young drivers. There's a a super late model driver, uh, well regarded uh, by the name of Bubba Pollard. Um, fans of short track racing are uh, undoubtedly uh, familiar with him. Uh, but he's filling in as a substitute driver for uh, New Smyrna Speedway legend David Rogers. And, uh, and Bubba struggled on uh, night one in the super late model to pass. Uh, I tracked him that race. He had a 28% unadjusted pass efficiency. Uh, right. And I've seen him race. I, I know, I know for a fact Bubba Pollard is an absolute pro, a consummate. Super late model driver. Um, I'm curious to see if he figures this place out because it's just it is not for the finesse drivers. I hope the weather stays clear moving forward. There have been a few rainouts early on, but never a dull moment at New Smyrna Speedway.
0: Never for a short track. And just quickly before the big track, this you know our uh, episode four will drop Thursday morning before the dual races. But. What are you looking at in terms of what we, you know, should monitor at Daytona through Sunday? You know, we've got a lot of practices, a lot of racing. I, I still say, you know, you, you mentioned the four cars of Penske and whether they'll try to do that. Again uh, on Sunday, uh, I still maintain like we did last week. If you were listening to our organizational predictions, that uh, Chase Elliott is still one to watch. We know Hendrick has the speed still. We saw that in qualifying. I think regression wise, <laughs> Chase Elliott's done everything down there except do well in the Daytona 500. I still expect to see that happen. David, what are you looking for? Uh,
1: in a word, weather, and and not in the uh, the rainout sense. I want our listeners to uh, consider uh, a study that I did last year uh, in between the duels and the Daytona 500. And it was a look of a correlation between the results of the duels and the results of the Daytona 500. The best correlation between the two came when the duel and the Daytona 500 had a similar crash volume. Um, The worst correlation is when we saw different temperatures and track conditions. If you think back to three years ago, the 2016 iteration of Speed Weeks, which uh, I was very intrigued by as it was happening, if you'll recall in the dual races, Dale Earnhardt Jr. and his celebrated car, Amelia, had a very impressive, very dominant performance in their dual race. And in that dual race was Denny Hamlin, the eventual winner of the Daytona 500, if you recall the conditions of uh, the duels that year, it was high 50s, very breezy. Uh, of course, nighttime conditions, a lot of grip on the racetrack. Uh, we saw a good dual race uh, just because we saw a lot of drivers very comfortable the handling of their cars. They all felt like Superman. Uh, tons of grip. Fast forward to Sunday's race, the Daytona 500. Much different conditions. The sun was out. It was mid 70s temperatures really slick racetrack. We saw Chase Elliott, as you mentioned, he was the pole yep. sitter. He spun out early. Dale Earnhardt Jr. spun by himself. He wrecked Amelia. That was Amelia's last ride. <laughs> um, and and the story of that race quickly became how dominant uh, Toyota, which is to say the four Joe Gibbs racing cars um, and uh, Furniture Row racing entry of Martin Truex were. And it came down to that great last lap finish. But If we think back to the practice session that occurred in between the duels and the 500, the Gibbs cars and Martin Truex all went out together in practice, laid down some laps in the draft, and they were some of the fastest laps we saw in practice all during Speed Weeks. Now, we're told that we're not supposed to pay too much attention to the lap times that we see during practice session at Daytona or Talladega. However, I think we should have paid attention to this one because that pretty much informed what happened in the Daytona 500. Verbatim, they they were the fastest cars in the race, and that's where the win went through. Meanwhile, uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr. didn't turn many laps of practice. They had won the duel. They felt comfortable. And they didn't adjust for changing track and changing temperatures. And we saw that from the onset of that Daytona 500 that he struggled with handling. Now, I bring up the 2016 season for a reason, Alan, because those same conditions almost to a T are forecasted for Thursday's duels and Sunday's 500, 58 to 59 degrees on Thursday night, low 70s on Sunday afternoon. It may be more overcast than sunny, as it was in 2016. My big question is, which teams will recognize the change in temperature and track conditions that is coming and adjust their handling in advance of Sunday? Uh, I think the best performer, not winner, mind you, but the most dominant car will emerge from something that takes place in the garage on Friday and Saturday. To me, that might prove more important than what we learn from Thursday night's dual races, and it's part of the reason I'm glad you're going to be banging around the garage for Fox Sports trying to get the skinny on everything, Um, and maybe we'll get to know in advance who's made the proper adjustments for the 2019 Daytona 500.
0: You know, David, you are not a, uh, a trained and natural broadcaster, but you are, have just done something which is awesome. You have led us into our next segment. It's called The Segway, David. That is what you just perfected <laughs> because you, you just set up how important strategy and decision making will be. Where does a lot of that come from? The crew chief. And today, the primary uh, role of this episode, episode four, Positive Regression, is to discuss crew chiefs and have our first inaugural crew chief draft here on positive aggression. And, um, and what a perfect segue because, uh, you know, the crew chiefs, they're like managers in baseball, obviously, all, all, the, all the comparisons you can make, you can look in their records, you can look at their attitudes. But in terms of judging them, there are ways, especially in racing, when you can look at their strategic decisions, and kind of break them down and look at numbers and judge them based on that. And that's what we're going to discuss today in drafting crew chiefs in terms of who would we want making decisions at certain times. And David, I, we're going to have to explain this a little bit because it's a little unorthodox, but but set this up a little bit in terms of what we're going to be choosing today.
1: Okay, so you and I are both going to be selecting four crew chiefs apiece in a snake style draft. Uh, For those of our listeners that play fantasy know immediately what snake style means. It means that one of us is going to get the first, fourth, fifth, and eighth pick, while the other person gets the second, third, sixth, and seventh pick. Now, the goal here, we're not building a team from scratch. We're not picking the best crew chiefs proper. The goal is to amass track position during green flag pit stops. The biggest positional net across the, the 36 race season between all four crew chiefs, is the winner. Uh, this means you'll hear us drafting the crew chiefs with the best likelihood for gains. You probably won't hear Rodney Childers' name mentioned. Actually, wait, that might be wrong. I can't speak for Alan. But be, because, <laughs> because Kevin Harvick runs at the front so often and pits from the front of the field the majority of the time, his ceiling for track position gains during green flag pit cycles is very low. Thus, the best strategy for this contest is to draft uh, a crew chief who we know is a competent race caller with a lot to gain from green flag pit stops. Um, And and Alan, what say you? I think we make it interesting. A, A gentleman's. Uh, bet uh, the, the loser buys the winner uh, dinner and drinks at the end of the season uh, at, a, at a Charlotte brewery of their choosing. How, how does that sound? That sounds like a deal. And, and I like this concept. And just to explain it even further,
0: I mean, for, to, for our listeners, uh, we've got a lot of great feedback already. And so thank you so much for all the listeners and, and everything we hear from you guys. It's been awesome. David, what you're explaining is that when green flag pit cycles happen. There is a benefit or a detriment to exactly when a crew chief decides to call their driver in, whether it's early in that pit cycle, right away after the first driver or driver team comes in or waiting later in the pit cycle, depending on that, you can go through and look, if a driver is in 10th at the beginning of the pit cycle, they make their green flag pit stop and suddenly they come out in eighth place. That crew chief has made a solid decision based on strategy and gained their driver two spots. If they suddenly come out in 14th, something has gone wrong and they waited too long or they came in too early, the crew chief has made a poor decision. And you can look at the numbers and really judge crew chiefs over a course of a season on their decision-making. And that's what we're looking at here in terms of a crew chief's decision-making, where the driver comes out on the good or bad end of green flag pit cycles, and you can see it in the numbers. That's what I want to stress to people, David. That 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 is your work here, and I want people. I want people to understand. You can
1: see it in the numbers, right? Uh, yes, when you pit is more important than how you pit. Um, and for for some of these mid pack teams, this is their bread and butter, right? Because uh, speed isn't just readily available uh, to every team. And there's no guarantee that every driver is going to be able to pass efficiently. So this is another pathway to track position, is the crew chief's ability to affect the race with their own calls, whether it's through short pitting or long pitting. I, I think we're going to look at a list of crew chiefs today. We're, we're going to celebrate the race callers that, that probably don't get a lot of play um, when you're watching these races on television uh, or listening to them on Sirius XM NASCAR radio, I think this is an area that our listeners uh, would enjoy focusing on uh, and learning. I think there are, uh, there's some talent uh, among the, the crew chief brethren in the middle of the field. I'm glad that just even this, this playful contest, we're going to be able to highlight them.
0: Yes, and I will say flat out, David uh, does this for a living. I've done my homework, I promise you, but uh, David's going to have a little bit more knowledge, but that's why we're all going to learn from him. So let's flip the coin and see who gets the first pick in the first inaugural. I keep saying first inaugural, that's bad English. In the inaugural, Positive Regression. Crew chief,
1: Uh, you realize all the pressure is on me. Like, if I lose this, that's a big loss. If I mean, if you if you lose, that was what was expected, right? Okay, I need you to call it in the air. We're going to do a virtual flip, courtesy of our friends at Google. You go ahead, sir. Tails never fails. Tails. It is heads. Uh, I get the first pick. So I'm I am I am very happy uh, to make my first selection. The in my opinion, the best strategist in the NASCAR Cup Series right now, Mr. Trent Owens. Come on down to Team David. He is the crew chief for Chris Busher at JTG Doherty Racing. We talked about the misconnection, if you will, uh, with him and Ryan Priest at JTG. Some of our listeners might be uh, scratching their heads right now, but. In terms of total positions gained across the last three years, each year, Trent Owens ranked 8th, 1st, and 2nd in getting positions for his driver. In 2018, specifically, he gained Chris Busher 99 total positions across 36 races, 22 of those coming on normal tracks. He retained Busher's position on nearly 83% of pit stops, so... I get Trent Owens. I'm very happy. I'm I'm I am shaping up for a, a night of some good eating and and fantastic drinking.
0: Okay, so yeah, it's good. it's your
1: pick. You get you get you get 2 and 3, but um what what's your what's your comment on Trent Owens? Good for you. Good for you. Yeah. When you look at the data, Trent Owens again,
0: the listeners may have a hard time thinking about this, but Trent Owens is the number one person in terms of when you look at the numbers during green flag pit cycles. David, you said it. I'll just repeat it. 83% of the time that his driver, last year we're talking Chris Busher, came in during a green flag pit cycle. Eight, nearly 83% of the time, he retained or improved his position on the track best out there. We're talking 99 positions gained over the course of a season. Again, to a car that was 23rd in central speed. So a car that doesn't have the speed that you want, you are giving him positions through your pit strategy. When you look at the numbers, Trent Owens was an easy number one. And uh, I'm a little jealous I lost the coin flip. But... Uh, again, it'd be easy to just look at the numbers and go down the list. I'm going to throw some, uh, some, you know, sometimes it's from the head. Sometimes it's from the heart. I'm also looking at the numbers though. And so for the second pick in the crew chief draft, I'm going to go with old standby, Mr. Seven time. Chad Knauss.
1: That's yes. such a good pick. That is very, very, oh, well done. Well Thank done. Thank you. Thank, uh, you.
0: Thank uh, you. I'm taking a bow. I yes. know it's hard to pick Chad Knauss in a crew chief draft, but let me tell you at least why we did it. It's because during a year when last season, when obviously all of Hendrick was having trouble, all of Hendrick was having trouble with speed. The, the 48 car was 14th fastest car over the course of a season. Chad Knauss and all his brainpower still delivered 61 extra positions to Jimmy Johnson and the 48 over the course of a season. In a season where they were struggling, think about it this way, 48 fans. In a season where they were struggling, it actually could have been worse if you have a worse uh signal caller, if you will, on top of the pit box. No, you don't. You have Chad Knauss, seven-time champion. 75, More than 75% of the time, they would come in the pits during a green flag pit cycle and either retain their position and or improve. He's Chad Knauss for a reason. He delivers whether they have the fast car or whether they have a year that's struggling. So Chad can ask for me. Number two was an easy pick.
1: Let me tell you why your your pick was good. Um, William Byron last year uh, was my number one prospect on motorsportsanalytics.com. But uh, as a 20-year-old, and we will give him an allowance for that, um, he did struggle to pass for position. He was a minus passer on all track types. That 24 team ranked 20th in central speed. I'll make a prediction right now. We were in the prediction business the last two episodes, but here's a bonus. They'll rank better than 20th. Um, <laughs> they, they they will make an improvement, but Byron is going to need some help. He didn't get as much as uh, I, at least I initially thought he would get from Darian Grubb last year, but to me, Chad Canals showed that he would be a good crew chief for William Byron last year, specifically in one of Jimmy Johnson's worst years, just by his focus on how he called each race. What he did last year is the kind of thing a crew chief does when he knows he, that he doesn't have game changing speed. Alan, I think that is a tremendous pick. Um, I would have considered him number one. Uh, just, he, he just does not have the total numbers that Trent Owens does. Um, But Chad Knauss, you know what? For my money, greatest crew chief of all time and still probably does not get enough credit for his work as a strategist.
0: All right. And and since it's a snake draft, I also get picked number three. And maybe this will be a little surprising. I don't want any criticism here. But when you look at the numbers and all things considered, the number three pick in the crew chief draft is Chad Johnston, crew chief for Kyle Larson in the number 42 Chevy. And I'm going to tell you why. He may not have the numbers in terms of how many positions he delivered. This this is my thinking, David. He doesn't have the numbers in terms of the positions he was delivering. But Kyle Larson had a much faster car then I say a Jimmy Johnson last year. And we talked about it at, at toward the top of uh, this discussion is that the faster your car is, the, the more positions you have to lose. If, if you're first place all the time and you go in green flag pit stop, the only way you have to go is down. So the numbers aren't going to be as high last year, the 42 had its struggles, but it was still the seventh fastest car. And Chad Johnson still delivered 17 positions to Kyle Larson throughout the course of the year. That was 2018. The year before that, he delivered 51 positions to Kyle Larson over the course of a year. And again, going back to 2018, 71% of the time, Kyle Larson came in and pitted during a green flag pit cycle. He either retained or improved his position on the way out. I think when you combine the speed, the potential speed the 42 had, the talent Kyle Larson has, Having that kind of retention and that ability to keep the track position and or improve it will only do good things. I want Chad Johnson on my team this season.
1: Yeah, and he was the Motorsports Analytics uh, Pit Strategist of the Year in 2017. But I, I actually think this is a good idea to go ahead and, and scoop him up for you. For the reason that we don't know what the new rules package is going to to do fully. And we don't know what it's going to do for Kyle Larson specifically. It might uh, hinder his ability to score the most passes in a race that he was just doing last year. I don't know. He he sure seems to start rear of the field more than any driver in the NASCAR Cup series. But for that that reason alone, just for the unknown, um, it's good to have someone like Chad Johnston on your pit box who you know has the ability and the wherewithal to call a good race you 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 have all the track position that you could seemingly ever want in Larson and when you have competitive speed you've got a winning car but Chad Johnston still sort of plays a game despite all that he's a he's a strategy-centric crew chief that again we also don't really talk about just because of how brilliant his driver uh, seems to be week in and week out. You're up, well, buddy. I'm uh yeah, I'm I'm at pick okay, number 4. I do. I've uh I've got two picks. So I am going to take uh uh Richard Childress Racing's Luke Lambert. Um he is uh traditionally uh a high output pit strategist uh last year not a Uh, stellar season with Ryan Newman, but uh, then again, it was, uh, so off kilter that they made the move to, uh, to, to jettison the driver. Uh, he gets a rookie driver this year, Daniel Hamrick. We talked about how he's an upgrade in terms of passing over Ryan Newman, but I still think there is enough reason here to hedge your bets. And Lambert is a good crew chief in which to do that. Hem- Hemrick a rookie. Rookies tend to struggle. I mean, if you're if you're expecting him to win races and make the playoffs, you're you're probably expecting too much. I think the same can be said for Lambert, who, I mean, as of most recently, twenty seventeen, gained twenty five positions on behalf of Ryan Newman while running in the upper portion of the field. I like him, and while I have him uh, an RCR crew chief, I'm going to go with a- another rcr crew chief and danny stockman who has really yes who has been promoted from the xfinity series and uh fun little fact for you he filled in during the 2016 season uh as paul menard's crew chief and gained him 31 positions uh so rcr has this mentality of of finding track position um, via the green flag pit cycle, I'm going to load up. I'm going to pick Lambert and Stockman is my two, uh, swing picks. I just, I got to get them before you snap them up because you, uh, you're going to come in here and you're going to, you're going to get uh six and seven before I make a last pick at eight.
0: Yeah, and the more you explain things, the more I'm really understanding, which I'm glad I'm not only a, a client here on the podcast, I'm also a listener. <laughs> um, uh, the, the longer we go, I'm like, yeah, damn, that's a good pick. I understand what you're doing now, especially trying to game the system. It's like, uh, uh, but but I'm slowly learning. So we're now back up to my picks. I get two picks in a row. Again, I, I'm seeing the value in your picks because you're, you're picking teams that, that need this track position, but I'm still going to go with, with my guys. Uh, because I, I just believe in them. Uh, so doing my research. So you have picked Team RCR. I think I'm about to get two steals, even though they, they are in the upper echelon of the sport right now, which may mean not as much track position gain, but stick with me. Four, what is it? The number six pick of the crew chief draft. I'm staying with Team Hendrick and going with Alan Gustafson as mm. my next pick. Now, here, again, let me tell you why. Again, the, the faster these cars are, the less they have to gain because they're already up in a high position. So maybe I'm shooting myself in the foot here. But bear with me. Last year, the nine car and Chase Elliott had the fifth fastest car all year. And despite that, Alan Gustafson still managed to pull off plus 78. 78 positions. Over the course of a season, via green flag pit cycles, he is still coming in. He is still delivering positions to an even faster car, and I think that will be a benefit. I think that will continue, even if Hendrick Motorsports improves. I still think we see that output from Alan Gustafson. Nearly 78% of the time, he is delivering, again, either Retaining the spot or improving after Greenfly pit cycles. So my spot is Alan Gustison with the what six? Uh, that was the sixth pick in the draft. Yes. And uh, David, quick feedback on that. Have I gone
1: astray or am I all right? Does the prospect of Chase Elliott improving on his restart and passing numbers concern you for this pick? Because it, it, from from where I sit, if there is an improved Elliott and he has the same amount of speed, we won't even expect an increase uh, in central speed, I think the philosophy changes. I think then their pit strategy becomes about uh, making the car comfortable for chase and trying not to drop too much from a front-running position. And they also yeah. might be in the front more often. <laughs> so, does, so does that concern you? It does. And now uh, that I've heard it explained in
0: uh, plainer English, yeah, it concerns me a bit. But, <laughs> you know, it happens. Uh, I'm a man of my word and I will stick by it and just move on. But I'm not going to be mad that I have Alan Gustafson on my team. I'm not going to worry about it. With my next pick, I'm going to pick a young gun with not much data on him, but Johnny Klausmeier. Mr. Mr. Meyer, I think, is going to be the steal of this draft, depending on how fast Eric Almirola is. Again, I'm slowly uh, taking it in that the faster cars don't provide as much track position in terms of the game we're playing. But last year, the, the 10 car Eric Almirola made a big made big gains, made big strides. They were though the 12th fastest car overall. And John Klossmeyer was able to deliver 16 extra positions throughout the course of a season. Uh, Before that, he had a little time, I think one race or two races in in 17. And he delivered 100% of the time (laughs) on 100% of his green flag pit stops. He delivered positions to his driver. He's got a great percentage more than 70% of the time. He's delivering positions to his driver. So I want John Klossmeyer on my team.
1: There's reason to think he might be the next good crew chief um, because he found speed on behalf of Eric Almirola. He got positions on behalf of Almirola. I wrote for motorsportsanalytics.com going into the playoffs last year that he was kind of the X factor in waiting. Um, He was at least positionally the best pit strategist among playoff crew chiefs last year going into the playoffs Stuart Haas has so much speed, and I—I I, I, I think I made that clear to myself. Now I'm—I'm I'm looking at my my big board, which is a notepad. Don't 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 get too uh, don't get too scared. I didn't make it like anything with magnets. Um, but Klaus Meyer is my only Stuart Haas crew chief on the big board, uh, and the reason being is all of those cars had plenty of speed last year, where they weren't really concerned about trying to trying to game the green flag pit cycle because hey well, they got speed. They can just make up anything they lost. But uh Klaus Meyer made Almarola's assimilation to Stuart Haas a little bit easier. He gave him a cushion. And even though this is year two of that partnership, I think it continues. Um and I I would say for you, that's, that's a good pick. And you have an admirable, uh, team of crew chiefs on your side here. I was gonna, I was gonna, uh, Google while we were talking to see if how far in advance I can reserve an Uber, uh, for my, uh, my, my dinner with you. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, it, it's a, it's a formidable squad, uh, to be sure. Excellent. All right. One last pick and you have it, David, who
0: complete your team because there's dinner and drinks on the line.
1: Okay, so this is where uh, this draft is going to take a nosedive. I'm either going to win it or I'm going to lose it. But I am going to choose Randy Cox as my last pick. Uh, I think we we texted about Mr. Cox today. He is the crew chief at Go Fast Racing, uh, which is now the car driven by Corey LaJoy. And the reason that Randy Cox is my pick is that he got more positions during green flag pit cycles than any other crew chief during the 2018 season on behalf of Matt Benedetto. 118 spots, a 79.3% retention. I am a little bit worried the majority of those came on road courses and drafting tracks. Um, I'm going to stick with him anyway, and here's why. Corey LaJoy was only a positive passer on the one-mile track types. Furthermore, that 32 car only scored six lead lap finishes. And when you come to pit road during a green flag pit cycle, when you're off of the lead lap and perhaps on your own lap, it is impossible to lose positions. So <laughs> I am going to I'm going take that little caveat, and I'm going to make Randy Cox my final pick, uh, giving me the team of Trent Owens, Luke Lambert, Danny Stockman, and Randy Cox, which is the most David Smith team ever uh, for, for crew chiefs assembled. Um, I, I feel like I feel like we're the underdogs compared to your team of all-stars, but uh, I feel pretty good about it, and if anything, it's going to be extremely entertaining. If anything, this is why positive regression exists, because we just did a crew chief
0: draft in which Trent Owens was the number one pick, <laughs> and Rodney Schilder's... <laughs> Adam Stevens and Cole Pern were not selected in a crew chief draft. This takes some explaining. This is why we do this podcast. This is why I'm thankful we have listeners that that can learn to appreciate something like this because something like this needs to exist. Uh, David, let's just, for for those uh, that are just settling in list and believe me, I am one of them. I, I am buying into this and I am learning and I'm happy I'm learning, but for bigger picture, When we do think of the bigger names, like the Childers, Stevens, and Cole Perns of the world, the big three, talk about their strategy just a little bit. I mean, we still need strategy, even if you have the fastest car. Uh, Just give me your impressions on the big three strategy, because that's who a lot of the focus will be on. Uh, You know, we try to shed light on on the other stories going on, but but just uh, quickly, for the the big name drivers who are running up front,
1: uh, who do you like for strategists? Uh, for me, it's Rodney Childers uh, among among the group that you just mentioned, just based on what he did last year. I probably wouldn't have said that this time uh, in 2018, but what he showed last year was a proclivity to keep Kevin Harvick's position when Harvick relinquished a top five spot. Just that, pitting from a top five spot, um, the average uh, retention rate is 50%. The average retention rate Uh, when pitting from any spot is 70 to 75%. So right off the bat, that shows you how difficult it is for these front runners just to play defense. It makes sense. They, they're the ones with the targets on their back there. Everyone is trying to jump them for position. And just on, on the numbers, when you look at these, these numbers on motorsports analytics, you'll see negatives, uh, uh, by Childers, by Adam Stevens. And, and if you look, if you're typically pitting from a position high in the running order, uh, there are mostly positions to lose, uh, and vice versa. From when we were pitting in the rear, there are only positions to gain. The only place it go is up. Um, that's why this isn't uh, this is a crew chief draft that isn't going the traditional way. They're more focused on getting the car right than they are uh, leaving this vulnerable pocket of each race with more track position than when they had when they entered it um they have a bigger picture scenario they're competing for race wins and they're competing for championships when i talk about trent owens and randy cox they're competing for track position their battles are smaller Um, they just happen to do a very good job at winning those battles. Not that they're inconsequential for crew chiefs like Adam Stevens or Cole Pern, but they just aren't as important because for them, there are bigger fish to fry. They've got to worry about setup. They've got to worry about handling. If something's wrong with a car, they've got to figure out how to fix it on the fly. Uh, And there's a lot of pressure on those guys to perform. That's why they're paid a lot of money. So yeah, the, the crew chief position is by and large the same thing, but in advance of each race, everyone's motives are wildly different. Uh, so that's why I I enjoy looking at the numbers and telling some of these stories that may go untold is because there are there are guys in the bottom half of the field doing some incredible work on behalf of their drivers. And if if you were in a similar position, this is the blueprint you should be following. I love it.
0: I love it. I love that people will get that uh, that knowledge from this. And, and that is why we do it, David. And uh, I can't wait to hear the feedback on this one, because it should be pretty funny. And should a lot of things uh, should be learned. So uh, that was it. That was the inaugural crew chief draft here on Positive Regression. And let's not forget, we are available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Podbean. We have all your favorite devices covered. If you like what you are hearing, and it sounds like you do from a lot of feedback we're getting, please leave us a rating or a review. That does help us in the podcast world gain some visibility. Your help in spreading the word is always appreciated. Uh, I will, uh, we are back at work. Race hub is on every night, Monday through Thursday, six o'clock on FS one, the new set, the new people, uh, Fox has done so much to invest in an awesome team that is back on every night. Watch that. It was an awesome to be at the track, be on television last weekend. I will continue to do that this week. The truck series is back Friday night. I'll be down there in the pits. So everything You'd ever want NASCAR-wise, it's all on this week, starting Thursday. The duels, the truck race, Xfinity—just uh, watch Fox and FS1—and
1: that's where I will be. David, what will you be doing, uh, Alan? The third-place running position at Daytona has gone from the safest spot on the racetrack to the running spot most frequently involved in large crashes, and because of that, I wrote about it for for, for Motorsports Analytics. Uh, wrote about that. I wrote about the positional shift of the tipping point. Uh, for the big one, the big accidents uh, we typically see at Daytona, and the best strategy, if there is one, to combat all of that. Um, that is my think piece in the build up to this year's Daytona 500. Uh, it is posted right now on motorsportsanalytics.com. Also, uh, I don't know about you, I want to answer questions that our listeners may have. Uh, so, listeners, I'm going to leave it to you. Please send in questions uh, to me at david at motorsportsanalytics.com. Yes, I will see that email. And if it's something that makes Alan and me think, we might just answer it on the podcast. So uh, make it a good question. The nerdier, the better Um, that'll, (laughs) that'll help inform, uh, some, some content because, uh, you guys have great ideas, great questions as well. Uh, and I'll echo Alan's sentiment. The feedback has been, uh, tremendous. Uh, when I, when I walked around Daytona this week, the, everyone wanted to talk to me about positive regression. Uh, so that's, um, that's music to my ears and, and very cool. So looking forward to doing more of this. And, uh, if you have questions, send them my way. Yes, please do. And uh,
0: until next week, everyone, I appreciate you listening. Uh, I hope you learned something today. David, I, I know I can assure you that I certainly learned something, and uh, I hope I get that dinner and drinks at the end of the year. But for David Smith, I'm Alan Cavana This has been Episode 4 of Positive Regression, a Motorsports Analytics Podcast.